Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Luke, the 23rd chapter, where my Bible is open, and I need you to be finding Luke chapter 23 as well. Lots of Bible this morning. Fair warning about that. And in fact, I'll have every single Bible reference on the screen this morning. Hopefully it'll make it a little bit easier for you to follow along in the Scriptures. Let's all be looking and let's all be working together in the Word of God for these next few minutes. As you're turning to Luke chapter 23, let me just join in the welcome from earlier. What a great number we do have in attendance this beautiful, beautiful Lord's Day morning. And especially to those of you who are visiting, to our guests, we are so thankful that you've come to be with us uh, today. And it's just a privilege for us to be here with one another on the Lord's Day to give Him the honor and the glory that He so richly deserves. This morning's sermon is going to be just a little bit different from the kind of preaching that you are maybe accustomed to hearing, at least from me. Normally, when you hear me preach, you're going to expect that there's going to be uh, lots of applications. It's going to be very heavy on the applications to our lives. You can pretty well guarantee whenever I preach, I'm going to give you two or three or four takeaways, practical things that you'll be able to, to take and start working on and putting into your lives the moment you walk out of this door. But this morning, I don't want to make just all kinds of applications. This morning, I want to just make one point. Now, it's going to take us a few minutes to get to that point. We'll have to build up to it. But I believe it is a singular truth that if we can grasp, if we can understand, if we can come to appreciate, I believe that it'll end up just reverberating into every single facet of our life and it'll have application everywhere. This single truth, I believe, is at the very core and the center of the gospel. So let's open up our Bibles and let's go get it. In Luke chapter 23, read with me beginning in verse 44. In Luke 23 and verse 44, the Bible says, It was now about the sixth hour. and There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Imagine living in first century Palestine and you wake up on the Saturday, the day after these events took place. And you get up and you go outside to your mailbox and you get the morning newspaper. And as you unroll that newspaper, the headline reads, Jesus of Nazareth, 33, dead. And with great interest, you read the accompanying story which says, On Friday, Jesus of Nazareth, along with two other unidentified men, died at Golgotha. Coroners pronounced him dead at the scene around 3 p.m. with cause of death determined to be severe torture, extreme exhaustion, and loss of blood caused by crucifixion. The son of a local carpenter, Jesus had recently come under fire for his unorthodox teaching methods, Bold claims to be the Son of God. Initial reports suggested that his death was the result of a rigorous trial that lasted nearly nine hours beginning late Thursday night, spilling over into Friday morning. However, witnesses allege that this was no ordinary state-ordered execution. 
One officer stationed at the scene described the three-hour solar eclipse and asserted that this was an innocent man. As of press time, no murder charges have been formally filed. Now, I don't know if anyone in New Testament times was actually talking or thinking in those terms. I don't know that anybody in New Testament times actually launched a full-scale investigation into the death of Jesus. But somebody should have. Because as that centurion in Luke chapter 23 correctly observed, this was an innocent man. Someone is responsible for Jesus' death. Jesus did not die of old age. Jesus did not contract some terminal disease or get an infection and die from that. Jesus' death was not some freak accident. He didn't just kind of stumble onto the cross. No, someone, or maybe several someones, took Jesus' life. This was premeditated. The question for us this morning is, is who done it? Who killed Jesus? Now I'm going to guess that many of us, we are pretty sure that we know the answer to that question. But I am not convinced that we know the whole answer to that question. And that's why this morning, for the next couple of minutes, I do want to launch a full-scale investigation into the death of Jesus the Christ. Last Saturday night, me and Tiffany and Cody and Amanda... We went to one of those murder mystery dinner shows. You ever seen those or maybe been to one of those before? Where there's all these actors and they're all kind of playing a part. There's a story that they're telling. And you have to gather all these clues and you have to stitch together all of the evidence to try and figure out who done it. And I guess that got me really motivated. Got me motivated to put my detective cap on even this morning and to see if we can figure out this particular case. But of course, this case that we're looking at this morning... This isn't going to be some game. And the suspects in this case, they are not actors. And the final verdict, the final outcome in this case, it is anything but inconsequential. What we are looking at this morning is the most significant death in all of human history. And identifying who caused the death of Jesus is vitally important for us. Because whenever we uncover just who killed Jesus, that revelation, I believe, should absolutely bring us to our knees. It should humble us and it should change our lives completely. Every single person in this room should be changed by the answer to the question, who killed Jesus? Are you ready for that? Let's get our detective caps on. Let's get our Bibles out and let's start lining up some suspects and dealing with them one by one. And that's going to start, that's going to start where many people are quick to point the finger when it comes to the death of the death of Jesus. And that is to point to the Jews. Did the Jewish people kill Jesus? In the opening paragraph of the Gospel of John, the Bible says that not only did Jesus come into this world, but in John chapter 1 and in verse 11, John says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That expression, his own, refers not to mankind in general, but it refers to his own special people. 
God's chosen people, the Jews. And what John records us just right from the get-go, right in his introduction, is that the Jewish people, many of Jesus' own brethren and kinsmen, they treated Him like an outcast. They did not treat Him as one of them. One of the primary reasons for that, there's several reasons for that, but one of the primary reasons for their rejection of Jesus was because Jesus often broke convention. Jesus often said things and did things that just flew in the face of the accepted norms and traditions of the time. For example, in John the 5th chapter, let's just work in John for a few moments. In John chapter 5, we read of Jesus miraculously healing the lame man on the Sabbath day. Any Jew who knew his worth in salt, he knew that you don't do work on the Sabbath day, and apparently that includes even performing miracles on the Sabbath day. Jesus obviously did not get that memo, and so he does heal a man on the Sabbath day. And so John chapter 5 and verse 16 says that for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. In fact, you should know, it's not just Jesus' actions that rub many of the Jews the wrong way. No, it was also His words. Continue reading, look in the very next verse, verse 17 now. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. You start kind of adding this up, and this is just a a brief glimpse into the kind of thing that Jesus did. The Jews certainly had a motive, didn't they, for killing Jesus. They did not like His teaching. They did not like His practices. They did not like His outrageous claims of divinity. Particularly those religious leaders like the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders. They did not like His rising popularity. They saw Him as a threat. And so, recognizing that his life was in danger, Jesus did what I believe any prudent person would do. He got away from those people. He steered clear of those folks. As you continue on in John, in John chapter 7 and verse 1, the Bible says that after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews, those Jewish leaders, they sought to kill him. And so while all of these guys, they're looking for the opportunity, they're looking for their opening to get Jesus and to kill Jesus, Jesus just stays busy. Jesus was busy about His Father's business. He had work to do. He had people to teach. He had multitudes to tend to. He had apostles that He needed to train. A mission that needed to be accomplished. And Jesus did just that. And His fame spread just even further, far and wide. So much so that by the time that we reach John the 11th chapter, When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus' popularity is arguably at an all-time high. And so it is in the wake of Lazarus' resurrection that a plot is set in motion by the chief priests and by the Pharisees to actually have Jesus killed. I'm reading here in John chapter 11, look in verse 47. After saying that some of those people who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, they came and they told these things to some of the leaders. John 11, 47 says that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, 
everyone will believe in Him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In the next several verses, if you keep on reading, the high priest Caiaphas, he actually speaks up and kind of tries to be a voice of reason, says, hey guys, uh, I don't think we need to mess with that Jesus character. I think we need to just kind of back off here. We don't need to be getting messed up with Him. They didn't listen. Verse 53 goes on to say that from that day on, they made plans to put Him to death. Read with me now in verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? Verse 57, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He should let them know so that they might arrest Him. You see, now not only are these guys just kind of talking about, hey, what should we do? Hey, maybe we could do this. No, now they're actually doing it. Now they're actually doing something to Jesus. They're setting the wheels in motion. These chief priests and the Pharisees, they put a bounty out for Jesus during this, the week of the Passover. Of course, it doesn't take long before somebody comes knocking wanting to cash in on that bounty. And that, of course, is one of Jesus' very own apostles. That, of course, would be talking about Judas Iscariot. I'm looking now in John the 18th chapter. In John chapter 18, we read that on the very night of the Passover, that Judas leads a group of men into the garden where he knew Jesus would be, where he would be praying. And we're told in John the 18th chapter and in verse 12, that the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him. The Jews arrest Jesus. That arrest then enables them to bring Jesus before the court of the high priest, where he is put through what can at best be labeled a farce of a trial. And after being shuttled over to Pilate, and then back over to Herod, and then back to Pilate again, Pilate who finds no fault in this innocent man, ultimately Jesus is then he's then presented to the Jews. And in John the 19th chapter, the Jews have made their mind up about Jesus. Doesn't take long for them to say what we want done with this man. In John chapter 19, they demand that he die. In John 19 and verse 6, when the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. What happens next is, well, you know what happens next. Jesus is ultimately delivered over into the hands of this bloodthirsty mob. And He is indeed crucified in front of the face of an entire nation, the Jews. The Jews did kill Jesus. In fact, several weeks later, this is well after Jesus' death, well after His burial, well after His resurrection, well after even His ascension back into heaven, The Apostle Peter had an opportunity to stand in front of an audience of Jews and to talk a little bit about what happened at Golgotha. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter does not hesitate for one moment to lay the blame directly at their feet. Look in Acts chapter 3 with me. In Acts 3 and in verse 12, Peter begins this little speech on Solomon's porch by saying, Men of Israel, Jews... Brother and sister Jews, men of Israel, verse 13, 
The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you, you killed the author of life. The evidence, the evidence that we have stacked up, and this is just a little bit of it, but the evidence that is stacked up here, it's undeniable, isn't it? The Jews, most positively and definitely, they participated in the execution of Jesus. However, before we go putting the blame entirely on the Jews, and a lot of people do want to just kind of point the finger at the Jews all the time, can I have you notice something that's said in John the 18th chapter again? Let's go back to John. John is going to be so helpful for us this morning. In John chapter 18, notice what's said with me there in verse 31. In John 18 and in verse 31, as Pilate is kind of talking back and forth with some of these Jewish leaders, he says in verse 31, he says, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Did you catch that? Pilate said, you all deal with him. He's your problem, you take care of him. But by their own admission, the Jews said, well, we don't actually have the authority to put this man to death. We don't have the authority to put anyone to death. You see, yes, it is true that the Jews despise Jesus. Yes, they had a motive to kill Jesus. Yes, they demanded that Jesus would die. But at the end of the day, Jews had no authority to actually carry through with it. They had no authority to put Jesus to death. And so I believe, I believe that this answer to our question, who killed Jesus, I believe it actually falls short. At best, all we can say is that the Jews had a hand in the death of Jesus. Which brings us quite nicely to culprit number two. Because the Jews did have an accomplice in all of this. We've already alluded to them. And that, of course, would be be the Romans. Did the Roman government kill Jesus? If you're still there in John 18, just back up to the beginning of the chapter. Look in verse 3. In verse 3 where it says that Judas had come with those officers of the chief priests and of the Pharisees. But notice in verse 3 it also says that Judas... He had procured a band of soldiers. The New American Standard Version actually renders that even more plainly by saying that Judas had come with the Roman cohort. That the Roman cohort took part in the arrest of Jesus. And so now we've actually got employees of the Roman government involved in this massive plot against Jesus of Nazareth. And unlike the Jews... The Romans did have the authority to execute criminals. In fact, Pontius Pilate, the governor, he reminded Jesus of that very fact. Look in John 19 again. In John 19, look in verse 10. In John 19, verse 10, in this conversation between Pilate and Jesus, which up to this point has really been a very one-sided conversation, verse 10, Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate says, I don't want to kill you, buddy, but I can if you don't talk to me. Of course, you know the next verse, Jesus does end up talking to Pilate. 
And in Pilate's judgment, after having this conversation with Jesus, Pilate judges him to be found not guilty. There's no guilt to be found in this man. Pilate knew. Pilate knew in his heart that Jesus was innocent. But I'll tell you something else about Pilate. Pilate was a coward. Pilate wasn't willing to stand up and do the right thing. And so Pilate washes his hands, symbolically cleansing himself of any association with what's about to happen next. But a symbolic gesture of washing one's hand, that does not absolve Pilate or anyone else of their guilt. In fact, in Mark the 15th chapter, I need to step away from John and get Mark's account for a moment. In Mark chapter 15, Pilate actually demonstrates that pleasing the crowd and the masses that that was way more important to him than doing the right thing. In Mark chapter 15, look in verse 15. In Mark 15 and verse 15, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Mark really doesn't pull any punches when he says that Pilate, acting as a representative of the Roman government, Pilate was responsible for killing Jesus. He is the one who ordered Jesus' scourging. He is the one who delivered Him over to be crucified. But it was not only Pilate. Pilate was not the only Roman official who took part in all of this. In the very next verses, look in verse 16. In verse 16 it says that the soldiers, the soldiers then led Him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Like a pack of rabid dogs. The entire Roman cohort comes together to mock and to beat and to torture the Savior. In fact, it didn't stop there in the governor's palace. Because after then parading Him through the streets of Jerusalem on their way to Golgotha, John chapter 19, verse 23 and verses 24, tells us that the soldiers, they continue in their shaming of Jesus. They stripped Him of His clothes. They tore His clothing apart. And they began to cast lots, gambling for the clothing of Jesus. And yes, they as well, verse 23 and 24 say, they were the ones who drove those spikes into His hands and His feet, nailing and affixing Him to that wooden cross. In fact, the end of verse 24 couldn't be more incriminating when John writes, So the soldiers did... These things. You just do the math. The Roman government in all of its manifestations, they were absolutely involved in killing Jesus. From His arrest, to His trial, to His sentencing, all the way to the crucifixion itself. In fact, even a couple of months later, when Peter and John were threatened by the Sanhedrin council to stop preaching about the resurrected Lord, Even then, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 27, the apostles in their prayer, they accused Herod, representative of the Jews, and Pontius Pilate, representative of the Romans, he accused them of conspiring against God's anointed one, Jesus. And so just as sure as there's a strong case against the Jews for killing Jesus, we've got an equally strong case for the Romans killing Jesus. However, 
before we go pointing the finger at the Romans and blaming them for the death of Jesus, can I call your attention back to John 19 again? In John 19 again, remember when Pilate said in verse 10, Hey buddy, I, I have the power to crucify you, the power to execute you. We didn't look at Jesus' response. Would you notice that now? In John 19, look in verse 11. In John 19 and verse 11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. What Jesus testifies is that Pilate, Pilate actually didn't have any authority over him. What Jesus says, he says, that's not your power being flexed, Pilate. It's God's. Pilate's civil authority was granted to him by Almighty God. And Jesus Himself, being God in the flesh, was the very possessor of that authority. Pilate didn't have any true power over Jesus. Jesus had the power over Pilate. And so, once again, this is an answer that actually falls woefully short. At best, at best all we can say is that the Romans Romans did have a hand in killing Jesus. Which leads me then to this third culprit. And this is kind of difficult for me to have to say this because the third culprit is actually sitting in this room right now. Of course, I'm talking about you. And I'm talking about me. We, humanity, the human race, we killed Jesus. There's no doubt about the fact that the Jews and the Romans in the first century, they were the ones who physically drove the nails into His hands and His feet. They're the ones who physically put Him on the cross, but we're just as guilty of putting Him on that cross too. How so? Well, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, the Bible says that we have all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, when you read that verse in Romans 3, 23, you can just plug your name right there into that verse. You have sinned. That's true of every single man and woman who has ever lived and walked the face of this earth. It's true of all of us. Furthermore, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 tells us what exactly we deserve for our sins. The wages of sin is death. Sin merits death. We sin, we die, and we get exactly what we deserve. Sin brings spiritual separation, spiritual death. And as we're thinking here about the effects of our sin, then it's exactly right here that the refrains of Isaiah the 53rd chapter start ringing loud and clear, don't they? Where Isaiah says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. That He was crushed for our iniquities. That all we like sheep, we are the ones who went astray and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. In fact, the Apostle Peter echoes those very same themes in his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 24 when he says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. And catch it again in chapter 3 verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins. Whose sins? His sins? No. He didn't commit any sins. Our sins. We may not have held the handle of that scourge, But our sins brought down every single blow upon His back. We may not have driven the nails into His hands, but our transgressions pounded the hammer blows. 
We may not have been in that crowd mocking and jeering at Jesus, but our iniquities burdened Him on that cross. Indeed, as we sometimes sing in that old familiar hymn, I'm, I'm the one. And so it would seem, as difficult as it is for us sometimes to confess, we, we killed Jesus. Yet even as I say that, I can't help but wonder, was there something about my sins that forced Jesus to get on that cross? You know, the Romans and the Jews, they did in a very physical and tangible way, they did forcibly put Jesus on the cross, but did our sins force Jesus to die? I believe the answer is absolutely not. Jesus did not owe us. Jesus was not obligated to us in any way. In fact, how self-centered is it? How arrogant is it for me or anyone to think that we have the power or that we would have the authority to force Jesus to go to the cross and to die for us? Christ was not indebted to me. Christ was not indebted to you. Christ was not even indebted to the most miserable and wretched sinner who's ever walked the face of this earth. That answer... And that probably is the answer I think just about everybody was probably expecting me to say this morning. That answer even falls short of answering the question, who killed Jesus? At best, at best all we can say is that yes, we did have a hand in killing the Savior. Now at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, Josh, kind of ran through all of the suspects, haven't we? You talk about all of the human race, that... Pretty much covers everybody. Who else could there possibly be left? Seems like you know we, we're kind of we're kind of at an impasse here and figuring this case out. All three of the groups that we've investigated, all three of them are culpable in their own way. The Jews played a part, the Romans played a part, and yes, even we played a part in all of that. But I don't believe that's the whole story. I believe that's only a part of the story. I believe what we need to say. We need to say the whole story. We need to tell the whole truth. When the question is asked, who killed Jesus? Imagine the headlines, the newspaper spinning and showing up a few weeks later after this investigation finally closes. The shocking truth is, Jesus laid down His own life. And I know this. I know this Because Jesus Himself said so. Would you find John chapter 10, please? In John chapter 10, as Jesus addresses some of the very people who would be crucifying Him shortly thereafter, in John 10 and in verses 17 and 18, Jesus says this, John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from Me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, the Jews, they couldn't take it from Him. The Romans had no true power over Him. And not even we could force Jesus to die. Jesus sacrificed Himself. That's the operative word we're looking for in those verses. He sacrificed Himself and He did that of His own volition. 
His decision to die for all of humanity, it was the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. Look again in Acts the fourth chapter. In Acts chapter 4, that prayer of Peter and John, after saying in verse 27 that the the Romans and the Gentiles and the Jews, they, they all had a hand in killing Jesus. Verse 28 says that all of those groups, they were simply doing whatever God's power and whatever God's will had decided beforehand should happen. God had already had all this mapped out. God had already predestined those things. And Jesus' self-sacrifice, it brought God's plan to perfect completion. And I will remind you that even as all of that was taking place, even as Jesus hung there, crying out in agony, writhing in pain on the cross, at any moment, Matthew 26, verse 53 says that Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels to come to release Him and to fight His battle for Him. What's a legion? A legion is about 6,000 strong. Do the math, that's 72,000 angels who could have been called upon in the snap of a finger to come and fight for Jesus if He had so desired. But He didn't. Jesus endured the shame and the scorn and the suffering of the cross willingly voluntarily, and why? I'll tell you why. We sing about it all the time. Because He loved us so. In fact, that sacrifice was a direct expression of something that Jesus had taught His disciples shortly before His death. In John 15 and in verse 13, when Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for His friend. No higher expression. No more noble expression of love could ever be offered. Especially when you think about who the recipients of that love were. And who were the recipients of that love? Recipients of that love were undeserving sinners. In Romans chapter 5, one final passage today. In Romans chapter 5, Paul articulates just how deep the Father's love is for us when he writes in verse 6, In Romans 5 and in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For us. Something powerful in those two little words. That it was God's great love, God's great mercy that caused Jesus to die on the cross. Just sit on that for a moment. Shouldn't that understanding, shouldn't that just cause us to go running to Jesus? Shouldn't every single person who's in this building this morning, who's of an age of accountability, you understand what I'm talking about today? Shouldn't that cause all of us to just go running to the cross? Shouldn't that compel each and every one of us to give Him the absolute service of our lives in everlasting gratitude and thanksgiving? I really don't know of any stronger way to say it except to just say it one more time. And that is to say, someone died for you. And that someone did not do that begrudgingly. He was not forced up onto that cross. He did it because He loved you. 
Indeed, that old statement, it's kind of cliche, but it's absolutely true. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus to the cross. It was His love. He laid down His life so that you might live with Him eternally. He was willing to experience a painful death so that you might not have to experience the second death. He loves you that much. The question before you now is, are you willing to love Him in return? And i tell you the saddest part in all of this. Somebody would maybe say, you know, when we talk about the cross, talk about what Jesus went through, that's just such a sad story. Brings a tear to my eye every time. And I, and I, I, I grant that, yes, there's an aspect of that that is very sad. But i tell you the saddest thing about the entire story of the Gospel is that there are for far too many people, for far too many people, all of this, all of this will be in vain. For far too many people, Jesus' death will be in vain. In fact, if even just one person hears this sermon this morning and walks out of this church building totally unchanged by the message of the sacrifice of Jesus, then it will be one too many. Don't let that be you. Don't let your Savior's death be in vain. Open up your eyes. Look to the cross See the great love of God and the love of the Son there. And then allow that knowledge, allow that love to move within your heart and move you, motivate you to sacrifice your life for the One who sacrificed His. If you are not a Christian, today is the day. Now is the time to die to sin and to put on Christ in baptism so that you can be forgiven of all of your past sins and you can be added and welcomed into the family of God. If you are a Christian, but you're not really living like one, then brother or sister, you need to remember your first love. and You need to come back to Jesus in genuine heartfelt repentance. I asked Glenn this morning to lead song number 340. If you've not looked in your song books, it's this song right here. I gave my life for thee. I couldn't imagine us singing any other invitation song after what we just studied. As we sing this song this morning, think long and hard about the words of this song. I gave my life for you. What have you given for me? Jesus asks. Think very carefully about how you will answer that question. And if you find that the answer is anything less than your whole life, then we are encouraging, we are pleading, and we are imploring you through the words of this song to come right down this aisle and to fix that, and to fix it today. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.